0: the first time on our one-month, or for some people, two-month retreat together. So since I missed the uh, introductions, I thought I should introduce myself a little bit, also, because some people have been coming into the interviews saying, like, who are you? Oh, and uh, I feel like I know a lot of people here quite well, but others I don't. So uh, my name is Anushka, and I'm on the Teachers' Council here at Spirit Rock, and uh, I've been... Uh, connected to Dharma practice in this tradition for at least uh, twenty over 25 years, actually. I was just reflecting the first time I did a long retreat like what you're doing here uh, was in uh, 1991, uh, t- sat the three-month retreat at um, Insight Meditation Society, so similar place as this. And uh, I was appreciating that when I was meeting people um, today and yesterday for whom it was their first uh, long retreat and sympathizing with um, some of the challenges and, and strainness of the situation. But uh, I, I spent some time studying um, Buddhism in college. I went to Harvard. And then I realized I wanted to learn it not just up here, but here. You know, I wanted to, to understand it in a different way than like professors and books and things like that. So I came to Dharma practice and took to it uh, pretty quickly, Very interested. Did 10-day retreats when I was in college. and uh, Actually, the 10-day retreat slot at IMS that I sat, now I teach that slot, kind of interestingly. Uh, And then spent basically between age 21 and 25 purely in contemplative practice um, of the sort that you're doing now. So I practiced at IMS. I went to Sri Lanka and practiced in monasteries. I went to India and went around the holy sites there. Did some uh, retreat. Came back, got a job, and then um, pretty much for the next 15 years, as much as I could, uh, did a one month retreat or maybe a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there. Uh, So, as well as practicing in daily life, I really appreciate these opportunities to uh, have retreat as you do. And I said as much as I could because also, you know, some years, like it couldn't work out. Like I wanted to do it and I tried to plan to do it. And then something from my health or family health or finance or something, work happened and couldn't happen, right? So for this reason, I think it's always really good that we appreciate, like, yeah, the conditions have come together for us to be here. And it's really a lot of different conditions that have to be uh, aligned for us to have this opportunity. So it's a blessing for all of us, really, to be here uh, in this container uh, for this period of time. And I'm happy to be uh, among you, too. So I did the um, teacher training with uh, Andrea and Greg, who are kindly sitting here with me, and I've uh, been on the teacher's council um, here for the last five years. I've been teaching for about 10 years. And so I thought I'd, I'd tell you a little bit about um, some tips on retreat or just some thoughts on going in long retreat, uh, and then continue with the theme of the body, as Greg started um, with yesterday, too. So if my tis- first tip on retreat is the thing that I just did about telling the story of me is something you should try to spend very little time doing. <laughs> so what I just did is exactly what we don't want you to come into your interviews and do, tell the story of me in this way. <laughs> Today I ate baked potato soup and uh, I'm getting over a cold and it's like this and it's like that. So uh, while all of that on a certain level is true, of course what we're uh, looking to in the practice, like the possibility that we can... Uh, gain insight into is something beyond the content of our thoughts. Uh, and it's really hard for us to, uh, to get that sometimes, but um, going beyond our usual way of relating to ourselves. So I was reflecting on, you know, what are, what are the main things that I feel like are helpful for a uh, long retreat from these many times that I've done it? And uh, I came up with a new acronym. Uh, so, uh, continuity. Uh, humility, arrival, investigation, and renunciation. So it spells chair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they're laughing. Like, it's, this is going to be part of the polycanon. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, So actually, I want to start at the bottom of chair with the R, with renunciation. And... Um, of course, this is one of the big features of coming on retreat. Even as beautiful a retreat center as Spirit Rock is, uh, it's not the same as being at home. So you leave a lot of things behind. And I really want to encourage you, You know, there's, there's struggles that we can have, different of us with different aspects of this, for sure. Uh, that the renunciation is really a very important part of this recipe. And we're actually all following this recipe that is this 2600 year old recipe for awakening you know we're doing the same practices that have been done and human beings are essentially the same even though now we have smartphones and velcro and wi-fi and stuff like that um, basically the mind body system is the same and the cause of suffering is the same and the solution is the same right? so the recipe is good so let's try to follow the recipe So renunciation includes many things. So some of them are ones that you have already been uh, invited to do practically. (coughs) So that includes, of course, the renunciation of your technology. In cases there's anyone hanging on, secretly, quietly, in the dark of night in your room. (laughs) Just as an encouragement you know, why, why is it that it's helpful to let go of these things? And why is it helpful to let go of even like reading and writing, which obviously are not unethical things to do? It's really that it just helps with the conditions of the retreat. You know, it helps you to be uh, more than on the surface of your life. So when we're constantly sending messages to people or checking our email, we're having to constantly engage in this level of sort of identity formation and telling people who we are, and then receiving messages from them about who they are and so on. And it can be sort of a relief, even if it's scary, to sometimes put that all down. Put that down for one month, like try not having that uh, stress of having to receive messages and to convey messages in this way. I often joke that like the Buddha didn't have to make these special rules around, uh, you know, smartphones and so on, like... It wasn't part of the, the rules that he had to come up with, even though the monks had and something, uh, 227 rules and the nuns had 300-some rules, but none of them had to do with smartphones. Right? But basically here, we really have to pay attention to what's our relationship to technology? How are we holding our solitude? Or how are we holding our uh, sense of renunciation of these things? So also we're trying to engage in this inquiry into what is actually true about myself, about my life, when I stop telling the stories. And when I stop telling the story about my history and about my past and who I am and my role and all this stuff, you know, what's left? What's actually true? So in order to aid this, you've got to put the stuff down. You've know, you got to put down the tools that we usually use to construct our sense of self our carefully curated sense of self. And don't worry, you'll still be getting messages in your own mind from yourself uh, at quite a rate. Uh, So it won't mean the silence per se. Uh, But really, you know, letting go of these kinds of habits. So related to renunciation also is that uh, we're living here in a community, And you come here, you're going to do your meditation practice and it's a solitary thing. And and then suddenly you're here with like a hundred people going to lunch and walking, sitting. And it can be a strange thing. It's actually part of the recipe too in some ways. You know, this this doing this together in community. It would be very difficult to do this on your own. And even though we're not talking to each other, there is a certain support that we give each other. Uh, in our practice, in the way we are with each other, in living together as a community. So there's a renunciation with this too. So as soon as you arrived, you got a certain room. Maybe you didn't like your room. Maybe you didn't like your roommate. You plunked yourself down in the hall, and maybe you didn't like who sat next to you. Or for the two-monthers, like, who are these new people coming in? I don't like how they walk, or... They don't know where the bathrooms are. They're making too much noise. So seeing how that causes suffering, our attachment to our views in this way. And I know Philip talked about this, right? Letting go of uh, opinions, views. and uh, So seeing the ways in which this creates suffering for ourselves. So part of this also as living in a community is that we have these different... Um, roles that we play and we have these different jobs that we do and it's very interesting to observe oneself in this new universe of retreat how we relate to this so for example in your regular life you might be a very important CEO but here uh, you are a toilet cleaner (laughs) I think it's great I think it's beautiful you know Uh, it's like oh and and notice if you don't like that notice if you don't want to do that you're like I'm better than that. I don't usually have to do this, you know. Like no humility. So now you come to the to the H in chair humility. So humility is actually not called out in the Buddhist teachings uh, on any of the lists. Interestingly, that's why I had to make the new list. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not in the paramis. It's not in the factors of awakening. You know, it's kind of strange to me at first why it was not there. I think partly it's not there because this uh, tradition grew up in Asian culture. The Buddha was from northern India. And my family is from Sri Lanka, and so knowing that part of the world, uh, to some extent, I'll say that humility is baked into the culture already. So it doesn't actually need to be called out as a separate, special thing. Now, of course, in the transport to the West, uh, we have a different culture here where we go to sports games and wave giant foam number one fingers in the air and stuff like that. So it does seem like it's good to call it out. So I'm gonna say, you know, humility is actually an important part of this practice. It's an important part of the spiritual path. It's actually critical and that it's not called out, I think, that it's not explicitly articulated particularly in the United States or in the West, I think, is a, is a loss. You know, being someone who's kind of bicultural, I'll say. So there can be a certain arrogance of our ideas of who we are or uh, our constant pursuit of our desires in this way. So notice this. Notice what does it feel like when there's humility, when there's a sense of letting go, when there's a sense of shift from my ideas of what I think should happen are definitely what should happen to like, maybe I don't know. This is my preference, I will recognize that. You don't need to pretend you're like more spiritual than you are and you don't have a preference, right? But you can just try to hold that preference a little bit lightly with a grain of salt. And perhaps remember all the times that you had a preference but maybe you were wrong. (laughs) So Rumi says, uh, this uh, poet, Sufi poet, failure is the key to the kingdom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring and finally I have no will. So this is radically different than the way we usually relate to our ideas of what we want. And even our idea about what is the correct strategy for happiness. So in some ways the, the entirety of the Dharma is, is pointing to this. You know, this teaching about suffering and the end of suffering is like, well, what's the, what's the recipe for happiness that actually can work in this crazy world? What's actually possible as far as contentment and well-being? These things we wish for ourselves and we wish for our loved ones. So here we come to the eye of investigation. So kind of check it out. Like, well, what's my usual strategy for happiness? And usually it's that I have an idea of what I want and I'm going to get it. I want to line up circumstances to be uh, pleasurable to me or to be aligned with my idea of how they should be. If I get that, I'll be happy, and if I don't get that, I'll be unhappy. Now there's kind of fancier, more dolled up versions of this that include how much money you need or where you want to live or what relationship you have, but it kind of all boils down to that. And it's just not gonna work. You know, In a world in which things are out of your control, it's just not gonna work. That's really the main problem with it, is it's not going to work, really. (coughs) So in a world in which we can't control even our own body, let alone other people, and what they're going to say to us, or what the weather is, or how life turns out, it's just not a winning strategy. And yet, poignantly observe how the heart and mind keeps going down that same path, keeps looking for that the same way over and over again. so one of the um, other things that's a a really easy trap to fall into on retreat even long retreat is the version of this I'll be happy or things will be good when they go according to my wishes that is uh, about your meditation practice (coughs) so it's really easy to fall into the trap of My meditation is good when it is pleasant, right? Uh, And my meditation is bad when it is unpleasant. Usually the ones that we consider good are ones in which the mind is quiet, the mind is concentrated. And those are certainly good things. But usually the ones in which we are suffering acutely, we don't consider good, those periods of time. But, remember, break the legs of my wishes, so suffering, knowing suffering, soaking in the suffering, becoming aware of the suffering that we all swim in, the dukkha, the unrelenting nature of things, the unreliability of that which we usually rely on. This is actually good practice. This is actually seeing clearly. This is understanding that can lead to wisdom. Wisdom. So notice when your wishes are to have your practice be pleasant is good and unpleasant is not good. Notice when you resist what's happening, whatever that is. I don't want this to be happening, I want something else to be happening. Or, all right, here's a good phrase to look for, my meditation would be good if not for this blank. And the blank could be something inside or outside. It could be if not for this sleepiness, restlessness, knee pain, chattering mind. It could be if not for this person breathing loudly next to me, if not for it being too hot or cold, if not for me not getting the teacher that I wanted or the seat that I wanted or the walking spot that I wanted. So it's really poignant to see like the mind machinating all these things. My happiness is dependent on these million things going my way. And then it's bad if it's not. So some humility with this. So check in. You know, notice if this is happening. And... um, It's so hard to believe. It's so counter to our like ingrained strategy for well-being, you know. But here's where the opportunity is for practice, to look into it, to see, to investigate. So arrival. So I realize as I'm speaking to you that some of you this is day three or four of your retreat and others of you this is day 33 or 34 of your retreat. But in each case, there's an arrival that happens. There's an arrival that happens that we can be uh, patient with, that we can be loving with. The arrival that happened maybe seemingly once as we got here in our car and unpacked, but the arrival that's actually part of a process and the arrival that actually is showing up each moment on time, you could say. So the on time doesn't just mean according to the clock on time. The on time means being aware of the leaning that happens, one way or the other, out of this moment. So feel this, notice this, when there's some sense of discontent. You know, what, what is going on here? There's a sense of non-arrival, a leaning forward, a leaning back. Feel the pain of that also. And with all of this, I'd say one of the biggest helps is this continuity and the gentle continuity of the practice. And for this purpose, we actually have the really good friend uh, at our disposal, which is our human body. So it brings us back to the topic of this mindfulness of the body. So Greg uh, told this uh, story that ended with the Buddha talking about the uh, entirety of suffering and the end of suffering within this fathom-long body. And I thought I'd give you the backstory on that quote. So there was a a being named Rohitasa. And Rohitasa was uh, a skywalker, they say. He was actually a deva, you know, an angelic being. And in these tales from... uh, The Buddha's teaching, often he has these encounters with people who who come to him and devas who come to him, beings with problems, dilemmas, right? And uh, he says, is it possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away or reappear? So he's wondering, can you get there by traveling? Can you get the end of the cosmos where there's no birth, death, aging, passing away or reappearing? And the Buddha says, I tell you, friend, it's not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away or reappear. And Rohitasa is very happy with this answer. So he says, it's amazing, it's awesome. It does say that, it's awesome, how well... That has been said by the Blessed One. I tell you, friend, it's not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where there's no birth, age, death, passing away or reappearing. And then he says why he thinks it's so awesome. So he says, once I was a seer, also named Roy Tassa, a powerful Skywalker. My speed was as fast of that as a strong archer. My stride stretched as far as the East Sea is from the West. Endowed with such speed and such a stride, there came the desire, I'll go traveling to the end of the cosmos. And I had a 100-year life, a 100-year span, and I spent 100 years traveling. So he was in constant motion. And then he says, well, apart from the time I spent on eating, drinking, chewing, tasting, urinating, defecating, and sleeping to fight off the weariness. So he's like very honest with the Buddha. He's like... (laughs) But he says, but without that... I tried to find the end of the cosmos and I didn't reach it. I actually died in this quest. You know, and I traveled as far as I could. I had this huge stride. So it's actually very comforting for me to hear from you that it wasn't because I didn't travel far enough. You know, like it's actually not possible. So then the Buddha says, you know, I tell you, friend, it's not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. But at the same time, I tell you, there's no making an end of suffering and stress without reaching the end of the cosmos. So he says, well, you have to get to the end of the world, basically. You have to get to the end of the universe. But you don't get there by traveling. So it's just within this fathom-long body, and you can insert your height in that, right? With its perception and intellect that I declare, there's the cosmos, the origin of the cosmos the cessation of the cosmos, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the cosmos. (coughs) And then I'll just read the postscript on this too, which is interesting. It's not to be reached by traveling the end of the cosmos. So truly the wise one, an expert with regard to the cosmos, a knower of the end of the cosmos, having fulfilled the holy life, calm knowing the cosmos end doesn't long for the cosmos or for any other so the good news for Rohitasa and for us is we have already the equipment issued to us here in the mind and body system and this is also what makes the renunciation both possible important and uh, essential you could say So drop all of the rest of your equipment, you have what you need here. Simplify in some way. And we have the practices uh, here to do this. So the practices of developing awareness, and essentially we're doing that all day in some gentle, continuous way. Sitting and doing nothing in the seated posture here breathing, noticing what's happening, and then uh, walking, also basically doing nothing, walking back and forth, and uh, trying to be present in the body. So I think it's, it's helpful sometimes to remember this um, meditation practice that even though the schedule looks a certain way, basically you're doing nothing in different postures and trying to pay attention. And I remember the first time I did this uh, long retreat, I saw the schedule for this three-month retreat, which is basically exactly the same as this one. And I remember asking the teachers, like, what are the advanced people doing, you know? (laughs) Because I thought there was like a secret other schedule that where they were doing, you know, I don't know what I thought they were doing, like foxtrot or like some things, (laughs) something like fancier than sitting and walking. And they were like, no, the people who have done, doing this for 30 years are also sitting and walking. I was like, really? Uh, And now I find myself also almost that long later still sitting and walking too. (laughs) Because it's all here. You know, as uh, Greg said, I love this like, you know, rubbing our face in (laughs) Nibbana. This teacher said. Our face is being rubbed in it all the time. And but, and here comes the renunciation part there's also like a metal detector on the way to (laughs) Nibbana. And this metal detector is going to beep if you have any shred of identity that you're carrying with you. (laughs) So there's like an extremely sensitive like airport mechanism, right? So whatever it is, whatever you're still clinging to, I'm a teacher, eh, back, right? (laughs) But I've been practicing for this, eh, right? Yeah. (laughs) But I went to Harvard, eh, right? None of that. Nirvana's not having any of it, So uh, in, in this, this practice, I, I like this quote about practice. This is from a Tibetan teacher, Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche. He says, while engaging in meditation practice, we should feel it to be as natural as eating, breathing, and defecating. It should not become a specialized or formal event, bloated with seriousness and solemnity. So certainly this is just one view of practice, but really we're practicing being human You know, and there's nothing unusual that we're doing in some ways. So it's good to check yourself sometimes when it becomes too much of a special thing in some ways, or basically when you're trying too hard or trying in like slightly an over efforting way. So, a couple times you might notice this. So, supposing you go to your room and you close the door, and finally you're like, oh, finally I can relax and not be mindful. So if this ever happens, notice, like, well, what's it like to just relax and be myself in my room when no one's watching? Like, what am I doing outside of the room? Like, what, why am I acting in a certain way that I feel like I should be acting? You know, what if I just allow myself to be here myself and then just very gently pay attention to, like, what this animal is up to? You know, what's happening in the body? What's happening in the mind? You know, it's, you're all good. Everything you have here has shown up is, is good to notice it's all fine or sometimes even when you go to the bathroom sometimes people will be in the line being very mindful and then you get in the stall and shut the door and there's a like finally right (laughs) so sometimes that's about a sense of self-consciousness or something some imagined idea of other people watching you but sometimes it's that we're holding a little bit too much tension or trying like a little bit too hard in some way and it's definitely good to slow down a little bit, you know, slow down a little bit so you can just pay more attention and so you can notice more things. Uh, but just to see if there's some over-efforting that's happening a little bit and just try to be natural. Particularly because this is a long haul here. You know, this is, this is a long time we're spending practicing. Or not, or just one moment at a time. Uh, but it's good to just, just take it very gently, very gently in this way. So uh, I'd like to to give some uh, time to talk about the walking meditation a little bit. I do feel like the walking meditation gets a little bit, um, too little attention uh, sometimes um, because, partly because I think of sort of PR and marketing, like you see a lot of statues of the Buddha sitting, you know, and so then you think like, oh, that's really the posture where it's at, and you know, but then you don't see a lot of statues of the Buddha walking, right? Actually, I did see one uh, exhibit of statues of uh, walking Buddhas. Uh, it was from Cambodia, I think, a certain period of time. So I think we should get one of those, um, or several them put them around here. But the truth is, even when the Buddha had his um, awakening, which did happen seated, he actually hung around the tree, the bow tree, uh, for several weeks after. And he spent one week actually just staring at the tree in gratitude. He spent another week doing walking meditation under the tree, back and forth. And then, in fact, when he decided he was going to teach, he walked from Budgaya, from this one town, uh, to this other town, to Sarnath. uh, Actually, what uh, Greg was talking about, where his friends were to uh, give the teaching. And he spent the next 45 years uh, walking around uh, northern India until he was 80 years old. Certainly they didn't have cars in those times, but they did have some ox carts and horses and um, stuff like that. Uh, But he made it uh, one of the precepts for the monastics that they wouldn't uh, ride in those things uh, to not give the animals uh, more suffering. So they all walked and walked really far. And still in practice centers uh, it's said in some uh, Buddhist monasteries if you want to see if it 's a real practice monastery you go and look at the the walking paths to see if they 're like well worn down you know if people have really been practicing here right. so for me the walking has been a very important uh, practice um, not just as a sort of energy balancing or in between but uh, a beautiful way of learning to practice in an embodied way. And it's one of the things that's most uh, transferable to your regular life. So this connection to the body that we can have in walking and in all the in-between times is really part of practicing how do we live a complete life? How do we live a life of presence as best we can? how do we live a life of kind attention? So the conditions in the world are not that conducive to us learning this. So this is a good place for us to learn this. So practice this even in the simplest of things, which is walking. So walking is a part of um, most different religious traditions in some way through the act of pilgrimage. So there are pilgrimages in many different uh, traditions uh, such as uh, going to Mecca and circumambulating the Kaaba going to a uh, Gangotri and uh, the source of the Ganges river in Hinduism Christianity there are many different pilgrimages to sacred sites such as the Camino de Santiago the Way of St James In many places, in uh, churches, there's like a labyrinth type thing, like a maze that you can walk. And they have one outside Grace Cathedral in uh, San Francisco. And uh, you do mindful walking in that path, right? <coughs> so here in the practice that we do, obviously you're not going anywhere, you know, going back and forth. But it really is basically like doing this kind of practice, this pilgrimage in your walking practice every day. Practicing connecting to the earth and feeling your connection as part of nature. <coughs> I forgot in, uh, a little piece of my biography was that I was just teaching in Brazil for uh, almost a month and then I managed to escape all manner of sicknesses that I was concerned I would get there and then I caught a cold on the plane on the way back. So I have a little bit of that lingering, excuse me. So yeah, the body is also full of dukkha, <laughs> this is true. And this is also one of our good wake-up calls from the body. <coughs> In fact, it's said that this is part of the blessing of being a human being is taking birth as a human being is that you have the mix of pleasure and pain. In the deva worlds where this Rohatasa was from, actually mostly it's like all too good. And so the devas are not that interested uh, by and large in uh, understanding suffering or life. And in the hell realms it's considered like all too bad. You don't have like half a second to pull your head up from suffering. But here in the body we have enough suffering and pleasure that we can actually have some uh, opportunity for awakening. So I could say a lot more about the walking practice, and um, I hope we're going to continue actually to uh, talk about walking as we go through. But I want to return for a moment to satipatthana, (coughs) to all the other instructions that were given. So this has been said before in the hall: the the postures, the bhikkhu is aware when standing, when walking, when lying down. Bhikkhu is one; a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning when looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending their limbs, when wearing their robes, you could say clothes, and carrying their clothes and ball, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, and who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So all these things are not on the schedule, but they're really all part of our practice of awareness. And this gentle continuity is really, really helpful. Trying to pay attention to the body in all of these different areas of our regular life. So like reaching, I'm reaching for the cup, yeah. Bringing it here, feeling it. Feeling what the water is like, feeling the temperature of that. So you have the time on retreat to do these things, to practice in this way, and allow yourself that time, that attention for all of these things. (coughs) So for those of you who have been here for a while, you might want to notice where might be the kind of holes in my continuity of awareness. (coughs) So it could be even small times, like maybe as you're putting on your shoe, maybe you forget to pay attention what it feels like when you're putting on your shoe. Maybe when you're taking off your shoes. Maybe you pay attention when you're changing postures one way, getting up, but not going down. Maybe you pay attention when you're outside the bathroom stall, but not when you're inside the bathroom stall. I had actually threatened to give the entire talk about mindfulness in the bathroom, but I uh, thought so I'd cover these other things, but I'll spend a little time on, um, this is like really an area where there's so much to pay attention to with the body and where we actually can notice ourselves as part of nature. You know, Whoever you think you are, it's very humbling when you go to the bathroom, right? is not very glamorous, what's happening there. <laughs> and it's actually also uh, just part of our animal uh, nature. And you could pay attention to this uh, when you reflect on it from the food that we eat, you know, we take it in. And here there's a moment of seeing not me, anatta, we I don't identify this food as me, then we take it in, suddenly it's me, and then in the bathroom, the other side, we usually don't identify with what comes out on the other side, Right? Not me again, right? So the magic of anatta. (laughs) From the dining hall to the bathroom, right? Also, of course, if you're practicing with vedana, and we'll talk about vedana more, right? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Noticing that. Uh, The smells, the sights, the experience of the body. You know, do we think that we're spiritual beings and so then we skip over paying attention to what it feels like? in this very daily humbling activity uh, of uh, getting rid of waste from the body. Also in the not me section, in the anatta section, like who did that? That filtering of the food through the body is quite miraculous, you know, that it works most of the time, right? In some way to keep us alive. There's really so many different things that can go wrong with the body and uh, we can get sick. But, the times when it's working well, it's like, "Wow, it's a miracle. It's amazing." You know You ate this uh, oatmeal and then it gave you energy, and then the rest comes out. It's like brilliant, right? <laughs> So appreciate it while it's working, <laughs> right? <laughs> while it's working reasonably well. Pay attention to your movements, even just habitual movements of fixing your clothes, of taking toilet paper,, you know. Uh, even of reaching for the flush. The so Buddha says this about reaching. Notice reaching. Notice when they're reaching for the door. <laughs> Notice when they're reaching for the flesh. Notice when they're reaching for the faucet of the water. Right. Becoming mindful of reaching is very helpful, particularly in uh, attending to the precepts. <laughs> right, because a lot of the precepts have to do with uh, <laughs> reaching for something or reaching in a certain way. Right, that we may or may not later. Uh, good about. So notice the reaching, noticing the pulling back, right? being interested. Being interested in the hands, feeling your hands and even small things like buttoning your clothes, getting ready for bed, how you take off your clothes and put on uh, your pajamas or whatever you wear, right? how you brush your teeth. Notice what is the gaps. Maybe you've trained yourself to feel the toothbrushing but you don't notice putting the toothpaste on, right? So this is not meant to actually be some like oppressive, uh, oppressive instructions, you know. But these are actually instructions about how to live a, a full life, really, a whole life, and allow it to just seep in slowly. You know, if you just got here and all of this seems like, whoa, that's like way too much, then just take it easy. You know, take it step by step. It's all right, right? But there's another approach that has to do with actually falling in love with the practice. Fall in love with the Dharma, fall in love with this opportunity to be present. Fall in love with tying your shoe. Fall in love with scrubbing the oatmeal off your spoon fall in love with when there's a piece of hair that's fallen on your face and you feel to brush it off, what that's like. And what would that be like to live a life completely connected with this kind of intimate attention to all of the smallest things that we usually gloss over because we're rushing to go on and do the next thing? And what if your life was able to be this beautiful opportunity to be present, even when it's difficult, even in the suffering, especially in the suffering. So opportunity to learn to be as graceful as possible, as present as possible, as gentle and continuous as possible as we can. So some of you might have been down to this, um, the gratitude hut, and there's one teacher, Ajahn Mun, uh, was very uh, focused on the awareness of the body. And you might have read this quote from him. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Really saying the attention to desert the body. Right? Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind and heart can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So the sense of, of loyalty, this, uh, uh, devotion, complete intimacy and connection with the body, in your investigation of the world, never allow the attention to desert the body. It's actually such a beautiful thing to consider. Like, what if I never left myself in some way? What if I just practiced even for one day like that? What if I was just completely connected to this animal body and knew its existence, experienced this fully, knew its nature, understood it truly for what it is? And as we do this, there will be times in which our attention flickers. Right. So get interested in that too. So is the flickering when it seems boring, or during neutral times? Are those the times that's hardest to be with the body? Is the flickering during uh, the unpleasant times? Is that when I vacate, when attention goes? Is it difficult to be with pain? Or even as the attention go when there's something pleasant happening in the body. Like do not know how to be with some pleasant sensation or feeling. Is that a difficult place to be with? So get interested in this. You know, like uh, you're learning about this animal and about the attention, the awareness. You're learning about how they impact each other too. So get interested in as, as you move around and how the body impacts the mind and how the mind impacts the body how there might be some, for example, sense of discomfort in the body, even from a clothing that's a little bit tight or something. And then that creates a lens of aversion in the mind, of dislike. And then notice sometimes how that has colored. Everyone you look at suddenly is displeasing to you. Sometimes you can trace it back and notice like, well, why why did I suddenly get in a bad mood? It's like, oh, there was an experience of the body and that impacted the mind. And then the other way, notice how the experience of the mind, that which we think, impacts the body. Notice how awareness plays in all of this, too. What's the relationship of awareness with that? Is awareness independent of that? Is the body in awareness, or is awareness in the body? What's the difference between waking and sleeping? How do you know when you're awake and when you're asleep? What's the difference in the experience of the body? Is there an experience of the body in sleep? So I put all these out there as interesting aspects for you to investigate, for you to check out uh, yourself in this lab that we have, this lab of the, the retreat. So my own experience in uh, practice has been that it's been so powerful to be able to investigate, to bring the sense of curiosity and hear things that people say and take them just as hypotheses and then check it out, you know, check it out with your awareness, with your investigation. So not necessarily by thinking about it in this way, but by using your awareness as the tool to understand what's true. So I'll share one more um, Rumi poem about renunciation. This is the uh, last encouragement to let go of uh, habits and stuff that might be holding you back. I put all I love in a canoe and then love sank it. Now everything is possible. So let's sit together for a little bit. So you can consider if any of these that you've heard about tonight is helpful for your practice. And if there's something that you're interested in working with more, playing with more, around continuity, renunciation, investigation, humility, arrival. So I think the practice doesn't have to be uh, overly formal or specialized, but there's something beautiful about as we practice awareness and this continuity of awareness of uh, in some way uh, embodying our dignity, our full dignity as human beings. So if that speaks to you at all, then uh, you can take that into your practice too. And I'll I'll leave you also with one quote from a great practitioner who I... uh, got the chance to practice with on a three-month retreat, uh, Greg Scharf, who, uh, I asked him at the end of our retreat, we were in the same hallway, so, how's your retreat, Greg? And he said, uh, oh, I was just like one long day. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I could see that, that's good practice there. So, so may you have one long day.